Hello and welcome to tonight's episode of Twilight Thriller Radio. We bring you a special Christmas Sherlock Holmes tale, The Case of the Blue Carbuncle. This is A.C. Doyle, and welcome to a special Christmas episode of your favorite classic crime podcast, Twilight Thriller Radio. We're here today with a seasonal tale of someone who ended up on Santa's naughty list. Today is a treat. We're going to bring back an old friend who will give you some insight into a very unusual holiday heist, a prized jewel of the Countess of Morcar. To remind you of the details of the case, let's see what the press said at the time. Gem stolen from Countess at Hotel Cosmopolitan. A plumber is accused of stealing a unique gem from the Countess of Morcar while she was staying at the Hotel Cosmopolitan. John Horner, 26, was arrested on December 22nd after allegedly stealing the blue carbuncle from the Countess's room while repairing a bar on the grate. A manager at the hotel told police he went to the room with Horner and remained there until he was called away. James Ryder returned to the suite and found that the bureau had been forced open and a small case that held the gem was empty. Countess's maid, Catherine Cusack, rushed into the room after hearing Ryder's cries of distress, and she confirmed his statement to police. When police found Horner later that evening, the plumber struggled and said he was innocent, according to witnesses. Horner has a previous conviction for robbery and is being held without bail. He fainted during a hearing in court, and the blue carbuncle has not been recovered, police said. So thrillers, can you guess who's returning to our show for the second time with a slightly less sensational case than their first visit? And while you're reviewing who I got my listeners as a Christmas present, hey, let's listen to a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, Gov. Got coppers all over your pretty hiding places. Just can't find the space with that shiny paint in your neck. Call it pro. That stash in your stuff, we know you want things to be discreet-like. We don't ask questions, you pay, and we're all hunky-dory, stashing your stuff. It's just extra. And we're back. So, Thrillers, do you have any guesses? No? Well, tonight, we have the celebrated chronicler of the, uh, can we call him legendary, John? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know if you should go as far as legendary, AC. Brilliant, certainly. Very well known at a certain level among both criminal and police networks, but legendary. But thanks to your writings, John, entertaining as they are, Sherlock is now much more of a household name. Yes, but... Sorry, sorry, it's it's so good to have you back, John. (laughs) Thank you, AC. For those of you who haven't recognized these mellifluous tones, tonight's guest is Dr. John Watson, celebrated chronicler of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So, John, how are you? Oh, fine. Busy. Fine. And how's the move to Brooklyn been? Invigorating and slightly less stressful. In London, my association with Sherlock Holmes was drawing too much attention and interfering with my daily rounds as a doctor. So when I was offered the Columbia professorship, I eagerly took it up. Rather surprisingly, Sherlock decided he needed new walks and whimsies and decided to accompany me. 
And since you've mentioned him, how is your partner in crime solving, that reclusive T-Rex of armchair detectives, Mr. Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> Funny you should phrase it that way, AC. The case we're about to discuss started when I was paying my holiday visit to Holmes and I discovered him lounging on the sofa in his purple dressing gown, staring at a hat. A hat? A hat. Not a particularly charming example of the species either. Let me explain. Please do. Are you ready, thrillers, for another wild ride? <laughs> More a wild goose chase. Huh? Oh, sorry. That was what you call a spoiler, I believe. Anyway, I was calling on my friend Sherlock Holmes the second morning after Christmas with the intention of wishing him the compliments of the season. He was lounging upon the sofa in a purple dressing gown, a pipe rack within his reach on the right and a pile of crumpled morning papers, evidently newly studied, near at hand. Beside the couch was a wooden chair and on the angle of the back hung a very seedy and disreputable hard felt hat, much the worse for wear, and cracked in several places. A lens and a forceps lying on the seat of the chair suggested that the hat had been suspended in this manner for the purpose of examination. I'm interrupting you. Not at all. I'm glad to have a friend with whom I can discuss my results. The matter is a perfectly trivial one, but there are points in connection with it which are not entirely devoid of interest or and even of instruction. I suppose that, homely as it looks, this thing has some deadly story linked to it, or that is the clue which will guide you to the solution of some mystery and the punishment of some crime? <laughs> no, no, no crime. Only one of those whimsical little Brooklyn incidents which will happen when you have almost three million human beings all jostling each other within the space of a few square miles. Amid the action and reaction of so dense a swarm of humanity, every possible combination of events may be expected to take place, and many a little problem will be presented which may be striking and bizarre without being criminal. We have already had experience of such. So much so that of the last six cases which I have added to my notes, three have been entirely free of any legal crime. Precisely. You allude to my attempt to recover the Irene Adler papers. The Irene Adler? You know the Irene Adler? And the future king of, wait, so what happened? I heard stolen papers and a picture. Was it blackmail? Wait, Sherlock said no crime, so. No, no, now, my good fellow, I did not come here to partake in celebrity sensationalism. I'm sorry that slipped out. Sherlock has had no official public interaction with Mix Adler or. Or? If we continue this line of questioning, Holmes' very persuasive legal team will be sending you a cease and desist order. My bad. <laughs> I, I promise you, this case has more than enough twists for your listeners. Now, where were we? I, <coughs> uh, you and Sherlock were discussing how many of your recent cases did not involve criminal charges. Ah, yes. So, Sherlock was saying, To the singular case of Miss Mary Sutherland, 
and to the adventure of the man with the twisted lip. Well, I have no doubt that this small matter will fall into the same innocent category. You know Peterson, the commissionaire? Yes. It is to him that this trophy belongs. It is his hat. No, no. He found it. Its owner is unknown. I beg that you will look upon it not as a battered billycock, but as an intellectual problem. At first, as to how it came here, it arrived upon Christmas morning in company with a good fat goose, which is, I have no doubt, roasting at this moment in front of Peterson's fire. But as calm as Peterson's morning might be today, he had an eventful night five days ago. Hey, where you going? What you got there? Stay back. No, I think we're going to see what you got for dinner. Hey, Tiny, you don't look so tough. Nah. Hey, hey, hey. Hmm. Stop it. Get away. Get away. Hey, you. You have to pay for that. Run. Everybody run. So, Peterson was left in possession of the field of battle, and also of the spoils of victory in the shape of this battered hat, and a most unimpeachable Christmas goose. Which surely he restored to their owner. My dear fellow, there lies the problem. It is true that for Mrs. Henry Baker was printed upon a small card, which was tied to the bird's left leg. And it is also true that the initials HB are legible upon the lining of his hat. But as there are some thousands of bakers and some hundreds of Henry Bakers in the city of ours, it is not easy to restore lost property to any one of them. What then did Peterson do? He brought round both hat and goose to me on Christmas morning, knowing that even the smallest problems are of interest to me. The goose we retained until this morning, when there were signs that in spite of the slightest frost, it would be well that it should be eaten without unnecessary delay. Its finder has carried it off, therefore, to fulfil the ultimate destiny of a goose, while I continue to retain the hat of the unknown gentleman who lost his Christmas dinner. Did he not advertise? No. Then what clue could you have as to his identity? Only as much as we can deduce. From his hat. An ordinary hat? I've seen Sherlock draw insight from a mud on a cuff. His methods are without parallel. Well, my listeners are very aware of that. Sherlock always tops our annual poll of who solved it best. On our Discord, there's currently a debate about which animal Sherlock most resembles. Does he ferret out crimes, or is he more of an owl perched above everything at night, seeing clearly what criminals believe they hide in the darkness? If Sherlock were an animal, what kind of animal would he be? 
Vote in this week's poll at twilightthrillerradio.com or join our debate on Discord where one of our listeners shared this gem. And here, with its nose a fraction of an inch away from a seemingly ordinary pile of dung, we find the Sherlock in its natural habitat. Sniffing, detecting, concluding. A true survivor in this harsh world of crime, bringing the wicked to justice. Perhaps ACO readers would like to get back to the story. Sorry, John, it's just exciting how much debate Sherlock attracts. <coughs> well, before I get on Dr. Watson's naughty list, let's hear some more details of how this hat leads to the Countess's famed blue carbuncle. If you insist. So, there is Sherlock, excited, eager to test me, pointing to me to this ordinary hat. As he said, here's my lens, you know my methods, what can you gather yourself as to the individuality of the man who has worn this article? I took the tattered object in my hands and turned it over rather ruefully. It was a very ordinary black hat of the usual round shape, hard and much the worse for wear. The lining had been of red silk, but it was a good deal discolored. There was no maker's name, but as Holmes had remarked, the initials HB were scrawled upon one side. It was pierced in the brim for a hat securer, but the elastic was missing. For the rest, it was cracked, exceedingly dusty, and spotted in several places, although there seemed to have been some attempt to hide the discolored patches by smearing them with ink. I can see nothing. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything. You fail, however, to reason from what you see. You are too timid in drawing your inferences. Then, pray tell me, what is it that you can infer from this hat? It is perhaps less suggestive than it might have been. And yet, there are few inferences which are very distinct, and a few others which represent at least a strong balance of probability. That the man was highly intellectual is, of course, obvious upon the face of it, and also that he was fairly well-to-do within the last three years, although he has now fallen upon evil days. He had foresight, but has less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which, when taken with the decline of his fortunes, seems to indicate some evil influence, probably drink, at work upon him. This may account also for the obvious fact that his wife has ceased to love him. My dear Holmes! He has, however, retained some degree of self-respect. He is a man who leads a sedentary life, goes out little, is out of training entirely, is middle-aged, has grizzled hair, which he has had cut within the last few days, and which he anoints with lime cream. These are the more patent facts which are to be deduced from his hat. You are certainly joking, Holmes. But he wasn't joking, was he? He might have been in a whimsical mood, but his inferences were no jokes. So he chided me, saying, Is it possible that even now, when I give you these results, you are unable to see how they are attained? So I confessed that I was unable to follow Holmes and asked how he deduced that the man was intellectual. 
For answer, Holmes clapped the hat upon his head. It came right over the forehead and settled upon the bridge of his nose. It is a question of cubic capacity, said he. A man with so large a brain must have something in it. Hands-on problem solving? Oh, the stories I could tell. But both because I was curious and I knew it amused Holmes to showcase his deductive genius, I continued to prompt him. What proof of the decline of his fortunes then? This hat is three years old. These flat brims curled at the edge came in then. It is a hat of the very best quality. Look at the band of ribbed silk and the excellent lining. If this man could afford to buy so expensive a hat three years ago and has had no hat since, then he has assuredly gone down in the world. Well, that is clear enough, certainly. But how about the foresight and the moral retrogression? <laughs> Here is the foresight, the disc and the loop of the hat secure. They are never sold upon hats. If this man ordered one, it is a sign of a certain amount of foresight, since he went out of his way to take this precaution against the wind. But since we see that he has broken the elastic and has not troubled to replace it, it is obvious that he has less foresight now than formerly, which is a distinct proof of a weakening nature. On the other hand, he has endeavored to conceal some of these stains upon the felt by daubing them with ink which is a sign that he has not entirely lost his self-respect. Your reasoning is certainly plausible. The further points that he is middle-aged, that his hair is grizzled, that it has been recently cut and that he uses lime cream are all to be gathered from a close examination of the lower part of the lining. The lens discloses a large number of hair ends clean cut by the scissors of the barber. They all appear to be adhesive and there is a distinct odor of lime cream. This dust, you will observe, is not the gritty gray dust of the street, but the fluffy brown dust of the house, showing that it has been hung up indoors most of the time. While the marks of moisture upon the inside are proof positive that the wearer perspired very freely and could therefore hardly be in the best of training. But his wife, you said that she had ceased to love him. This hat has not been brushed for weeks. When I see you, my dear Watson, with a week's accumulation of dust upon your hat, and when your wife allows you to go out in such a state, I shall fear that you also have been unfortunate enough to lose your wife's affection. But he might be a bachelor. Nay, he was bringing home the goose with a as a peace offering to his wife. Remember the card upon the bird's leg? You have an answer to everything, and it is all very ingenious, but since, as you said just now, there has been no crime committed, and no harm done save the loss of a goose, all this seems to be rather a waste of energy. You promised more than enough twists to satisfy our listeners, John, but we're still just talking about a Christmas goose. No snack advertisement? Segway for your loyal listeners, AC? 
<laughs> you are impatient, but I assure you this goose chase is about to get wild because just then we were interrupted by the astonished Peterson, wide-eyed and flushed from his evident haste. The goose, Mr. Holmes. The goose, sir. Eh? What of it, then? Has it returned to life and flapped through the kitchen window? See here, Mr. Holmes. See what the spouse found in a crop. And in the center of Peterson Pom, we saw a brilliantly scintillating blue stone. Rather smaller than a bean in size, but of such purity and radiance that it twinkled like an electric point in the shadowed hollow of his hand. I still remember the sight, the gem glowing like a distant star. Holmes had not expected this. By Jove, Peterson, this is treasure trove indeed. I suppose you know what you have got. A diamond, sir? A precious stone. It cut right into glass. It's more than a precious stone. It is the precious stone. Not the Countess of Morcar's blue carbuncle. Precisely so. I ought to know its size and shape. That I have read the advertisement about it in the Times every day lately. It is absolutely unique, and its value can only be conjectured. But the reward offered of $10,000 is certainly not with, within a twentieth part of the market price. $10,000? Oh my God! That is the reward, and I have reason to know that there are sentimental considerations in the background which would induce the Countess to part with half her fortune if she could but recover the gem. It was lost, if I remember right, at the Hotel Cosmopolitan. Precisely so, on December 22nd, just five days ago, John Horner, a plumber, was accused of having abstracted it from the lady's jewel case. The evidence against him was so strong that the case has been referred to the Assizes. But the question for us now to solve is the sequence of events leading from a rifle jewel case at one end to the crop of a goose on Tottenham Court Road at the other. You see, Watson, our little deductions have suddenly assumed a much more important and less innocent aspect. Here is the stone. The stone came from the goose and the goose came from Mr. Henry Baker. The gentleman with the bad hat and all the other characteristics with which I have bored you. So now we must set ourselves very seriously to finding this gentleman and ascertaining what part he has played in this little mystery. To do this, we must try the simplest means first, and these lie undoubtedly in an advertisement in all the evening papers. If this fails, I shall have recourse to other methods. What will you say? Give me a pencil and a slip of paper. Now then, found at the corner of Goodge Street a goose and a black felt hat Mr. Henry Baker can have the same by applying at 6.30 this evening at 221 B Baker Street. That is clear and concise. Very, but will he see it? Well, he is sure to keep an eye on the papers, since to a poor man the loss was a heavy one. 
he was clearly so scared by his mischance in breaking the window and by the approach of peterson that he thought of nothing but flight but since then he must have bitterly regretted the impulse which caused him to drop his bird then again the introduction of his name will cause him to see it for everyone who knows him will direct his attention to it here you are peterson run down to the advertising agency and have this put in the evening papers english oh in the globe star Mall, st james's evening news standard echo and any others that occur to you very well mr holmes and this stone Ah, oh, yes, I shall keep this stone and make sure you get the reward. Thank you. And I say, Peterson, just buy a goose on your way back and leave it here with me, for we must have one to give to this gentleman in place of the one which your family is now devouring. It's a bonny thing. Just see how it glints and sparkles. Of course, it is a nucleus and focus of crime, every good stone is. They are the devil's pet baits. In the larger and older jewels, every facet may stand for a bloody deed. This stone is not yet 20 years old. It was found in the banks of the Amoy River in southern China and is remarkable in having every characteristic of the carbuncle, save that it is blue in shade instead of ruby red. In spite of its youth, it has already a sinister history. There have been two murders, a vitriol throwing, a suicide, and several robberies brought about for the sake of this 40 grain weight of crystallized charcoal. Who would think that so pretty a toy would be a purveyor to the gallows in the prison? I'll lock it up in my strong box now and drop a line to the Countess to say that we have it. That's a huge Christmas surprise for both Holmes and the Countess Morcar. So did this somehow prove Horner's innocence? At that point, Sherlock could draw no conclusions. All we could do is wait until Mr. Henry Baker showed up. Was he guilty? <laughs> so impatient, AC. We still have a few more twists for your listeners, my friend. I had patience to see and nothing could be answered immediately. So I made arrangements to attend upon Sherlock that night. I arrived at Baker Street at the same time as Mr. Henry Baker, a tall man in a beret with a coat which was buttoned up to his chin, waiting outside in the bright semicircle which was thrown from the fanlight. We were shown up together to Holmes's rooms. Mr. Henry Baker, I believe? Pray, take this chair by the fire, Mr. Baker. It is a cold night. And I observe that your circulation is more adapted for summer than for winter. Ah, Watson, you have just come at the right time. Is that your hat, Mr. Baker? Yes, sir, that is undoubtedly my hat. We have retained these things for some days because we expected to see an advertisement from you giving your address. I am at a loss to know now why you did not advertise. <laughs> Dollars have not been so plentiful with me as they once were. I had no doubt that the gang of roughs who assaulted me had carried off both my hat and the bird. I did not care to spend more money in a hopeless attempt at recovering them. Very naturally. By the way, about the bird, we were compelled to eat it. To eat it? 
Yes, it would have been of no use to anyone had we not done so. But I presume that this other goose upon the sideboard, which is about the same weight and perfectly fresh, will answer your purpose equally well. Oh, certainly, certainly. Of course, we still have the feathers, legs, crop, and so on of your own bird, so if you wish. <laughs> they might be useful to me as relics of my adventure, but beyond that I can hardly see what use the disjecta member of my late acquaintance are going to be to me. No, sir, I think that with your permission, I will confine my attentions to the excellent bird which I perceive upon the sideboard. There is your hat, then, and there your bird. By the way, would it bore you to tell me where you got the other one from? I am somewhat of a fowl fancier, and I have seldom seen a better grown goose. Certainly, sir. There are a few of us who frequent Union Hall, near the museum. We are to be found in the museum itself during the day, you understand. This year, our good host, Windigate by name, instituted a goose club by which, on consideration of two dollars every week, we were each to receive a bird at Christmas. My dollars were duly paid, and the rest is familiar to you. I am much indebted to you, sir, for a beret is fitted neither to my ears nor my gravity. So much for Mr. Henry Baker. It is quite certain that he knows nothing whatever about the matter. Are you hungry, Watson? Not particularly. Then I suggest that we turn our dinner into a supper and follow up this clue while it is still hot. By all means. Another one of Holmes's brisk walks. You really haven't been around the city, AC, until you've walked the streets with Sherlock. His attention to detail is contagious, and you will find yourself thinking almost in poetry. I'm sure our loyal listeners would love a walk led by you or Holmes anytime. Maybe we could set one. Um, our schedules are extremely full, AC, and I'm sure your listeners can look at a map and make their own adventures. Uh, of course. So you skip dinner for detecting. Is that common? Sadly, yes. Sherlock's appetites for novelty always outshouted any need for actual food. But to return to our wild goose hunt, it was a bitter night, so we drew on our ulsters and wrapped cravats about our throats. Outside, the stars were shining coldly in a cloudless sky, and the breath of the passers-by blew out into smoke like so many pistol shots. Our footfalls rang out crisply and loudly as we swung through Doctor's Row, down Carroll Street, through Prospect Park. In less than an hour, we were in Crown Heights at the Union Hall, a bustling public house. Holmes pushed open the door of the stately library bar and ordered two glasses of beer from the ruddy-faced, white-aproned landlord. As was my wont, I began recording our conversations on my phone, uh, with permissions, of course. Your beer should be excellent if it is as good as your geese. Yes. Yes. I was speaking only half an hour ago to Mr. Henry Baker. He was a member of your goose club. Ah, oh, yes, I see. But you see, sir, them's not a geese. Indeed. Whose then? Well, I got two dozen from a salesman in Greenpoint. Indeed. I know some of them. Which was it? Beckenridge is his name. Ah, I don't know him. 
Well, here's your good health landlord and prosperity to your house. Good night. Okay. Now, for Mr. Breckenridge, remember, Watson, that though we have so homely a thing as a goose at one end of this chain, we have at the other a man who will certainly get seven years in prison unless we can establish his innocence. It is possible that our inquiry may confirm his guilt, but in any case, we have a line of investigation which has been missed by the police and which a singular chance has placed in our hands. Let us follow it out to the bitter end. Face us to the south then, and quick march. Quick march we did. Holmes whistling merrily as we went. The thrill of the chase, the spirit of the season added wings to his boots. We passed through Crown Heights and Sherlock allowed a short bus ride to Greenpoint in his excitement. One of the larger shops bore the name of Breckenridge upon it, and the proprietor, a horsey looking man with a sharp face and trim side whiskers, was helping a boy put up the shutters. Holmes immediately addressed him, but it wasn't long before the conversation went awry. Sold out of geese, I see. Let you have 500 tomorrow morning. That's no good. Well, there are some in the back with the gas flare. Ah, but I was recommended to you. Who by? The landlord at Union Hall. Oh, yeah, I sent him a couple of dozen. Fine birds they were, too. Now, where did you get them from? You were reading my mind, John, pausing to remind our viewers to remember their local food banks when considering holiday donations. Oh, excellent, excellent, yes. So many need a little help and kindness all times of year, but it can be especially cheering during the holidays, both for the giver and the recipient. But you and I both know, AC, that psychic phenomenon is hearsay. I stopped the tape because I remembered Holmes's seemingly ordinary question provoked an extraordinary burst of anger from the goose salesman who refused Sherlock any information. Now then, mister, what are you driving at? Let's have it straight now. It is straight enough. I should like to know who sold you the geese which you supplied to Union Hall. Well then, I shan't tell you. So now. Oh, it is a matter of no importance. But I don't know why you should be so warm over such a trifle. Warm? You'd be as warm, maybe, if you were as pestered as I am. When I pay good money for a good article, that should be an end of the business. But it's where are the geese? And who did you sell the geese to? And what will you take for the geese? <laughs> One would think they were the only geese in the world to hear the fuss that is made over them. Well, I have no connection with any other people who have been making inquiries. If you won't tell us, the bet is off. But I'm always ready to back my opinion on a matter of fowls. And I have a fiver on it that the bird I ate is country bread. Well then, 
you have lost your fiver for its town bread. It's nothing of the kind. I say it is. I don't believe it. Do you think you know more about fowls than I, who have handled them ever since I was a toddler? I tell you, all those birds that went to Union were town bred. You'll never persuade me to believe that. Will you bet, then? It's merely taking your money, for I know that I am right. But I'll have a fiver on with you, just to teach you not to be so obstinate. Bring me the books, Bill. Now then, Mr. Cocksure, I thought that I was out of geese, but before I finish, you'll find that there is still one left in my shop. You see this little book? Oh? That's the list of the folk from whom I buy. Do you see? Well then, here. On this page are the country folk, and the numbers after their names are where their accounts are in the big ledger. Now then, now then, you see this other page in red ink? Well, that is the list of my town suppliers. Now, look at that third name. Just read it out to me. Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road. Two, four, nine. Quite so. Now, turn that two, four, nine up in the ledger. Here you are, Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road, egg and poultry, poultry supplier. Now then, that's what's the last entry? December 22nd, 24 geese at $44. Quite so. There you are. And underneath, sold to Mr. Windigate of Union Hall at $80. What have you to say to that? <laughs> when you see a man with whiskers of that cut and the racing form protruding out of his pocket, you can always draw him by a bet. I dare say that if I had put $100 down in front of him, that man would not have given me such a complete information as was drawn from him by the idea that he was doing me on a wager. Well, Watson, we are, I fancy, nearing the end of our quest, and the only point which remains to be determined is whether we should go on to this Mrs. Oakshot tonight or whether we should reserve it for tomorrow. It is clear from that surly fellow said that there are other besides ourselves who are anxious about the matter, and I should. I've had enough of you and your geese. I wish you were all at the devil together. If you come pestering me any more with your silly talk, I'll set the dog on you. You bring Mrs. Oakshot here, and I'll answer her. But what have you to do with it? Did I buy the geese off you? No, but one of them was mine all the same. Well, then ask Mrs. Oakshot for it. 
She told me to ask you. Well, you can ask the king of Prussia for all I care. I've had enough of it. Get out of it. Busy night at the goose shop? Frustrating for Mr. Breckenridge, I fear. All questions, no answers. But Sherlock was determined to chase down the answers to all his questions, so the scurrying, rat-faced figure, fleeing an angry goose merchant, didn't get far. Striding through the scattered knots of people who lounged round the still-open shops, Holmes speedily overtook the little man and touched him upon the shoulder. He sprang round, and I could see in the gaslight that every vestige of colour had been driven from his face. Ha! This may save us a visit to Brixton Road. Let's see what is to be made of this fellow. Who are you, then? What do you want? You will excuse me, but I could not help overhearing the questions which you put to the salesman just now. I think that I could be of assistance to you. You? Who are you? How could you know anything of the matter? My name is Sherlock Holmes. It is my business to know what other people don't know. But you can know nothing of this. Excuse me. I know everything of it. You are endeavouring to trace some geese which were sold by Mrs. Oakshot of Brixton Road to a salesman named Breckenridge by him in turn to Mr. Windigate of, of Union Hall, and by him to his club, of which Mr. Henry Baker is a member. Oh, sir, you are the very man whom I have longed to meet. I can hardly explain to you how interested I am in this matter. In that case, we had better discuss it in a cosy room rather than on this windswept street corner. But pray tell me, before we go further, who it is that I have the pleasure of assisting? My name is John Robinson. No, no, the real name. It is always awkward doing business with an alias. Well then, my real name is James Ryder. So to refresh the thriller's memory, Ryder was the head attendant at the Hotel Cosmopolitan, who had given evidence relating to the Countess of Morcar's missing jewel. Good recall there, A.C. Sherlock invited him to step into the cab with a very Sherlock grand, and I shall soon be able to tell you everything which you should wish to know. The little man stood glancing from one to the other of us with a half-frightened, half-hopeful eyes, as one who is not sure whether he is on the verge of a windfall or a catastrophe. Then he stepped into the cab, and in a half an hour we were back in the sitting room at Baker Street. Nothing had been said during our drive, but the high, thin breathing of our new companion and the clasping and unclaspings of his hands spoke of the nervous tension within him. Here we are. The fire looks very seasonable in this weather. You look cold, Mr. Ryder. Pray, take the basket chair. I will just put on my slippers before we settle this little matter of yours. Now then, you want to know what became of those geese? Yes, sir. Or rather, I fancy of that goose. It was one bird. I imagine in which you were interested. 
white with a black bar across the tail. Oh, sir, can you tell me where it went to? It came here. Here? Yes, and a most remarkable bird it proved. I don't wonder that you should take an interest in it. It laid an egg after it was dead. The bonniest, brightest little blue egg that ever was seen. I have it here in my museum. Okay. Holmes certainly knows how to milk a dramatic moment. Mm. He does enjoy showing off his deductive skills. There's a noticeable flair to these reveals. It's a good thing he doesn't go into podcasting, or you, or I might have some serious competition. <laughs> no worries there, AC. Neither of us, well, let's say we prefer private triumphs, such as Holmes brandishing the stolen carbuncle at the man who lost it. Ryder staggered to his feet and clutched the mantelpiece with his right hand. Holmes unlocked his strong box and held up the blue carbuncle which shone out like a star with a cold, brilliant, many-pointed radiance. Ryder stood glaring with a drawn face, uncertain whether to claim or to disown it. The game's up, Ryder. Hold up, man, or you'll be into the fire. Give him an arm back into his chair, Watson. He's not got blood enough to go in for felony with impunity. Give him a dash of brandy. So, now he looks a little more human. What a shrimp it is, to be sure. I have almost every link in my hands and all the proof which I could possibly need. So there is little which you need tell me. Still, that little may as well be cleared up to make the case complete. You had heard, Ryder, of this blue stone of the Countess of Morcars? It was Catherine Cusack who told me of it. I see. Her ladyship's waiting maid. Well, the temptation of sudden wealth so easily acquired was too much for you, as it has been for better men before you. But you were not very scrupulous in the means you used. It seems to me, Ryder, that there is the making of a very pretty villain in you. You knew that this man Horner, the plumber, had been concerned in some such matter before, and that suspicion would rest the more readily upon him. What did you do then? You made some small job in my lady's room, you and your confe confederate Cusack and you managed that he should be the man sent for. Then, when he had left, you rifled the jewel case, raised the alarm, and had this unfortunate man arrested. You then... For God's sake, have mercy. Think of my father, of my mother. It would break their hearts. I never went wrong before. I never will again. I swear it. I swear it on a Bible. Oh, don't bring it into court. For Christ's sake, don't. Get back in, into your chair. It is very well to cringe and crawl now, but you thought little enough of this poor Horner on the dock for a crime of which he knew nothing. I will fly, Mr. Holmes. I will leave the country, sir. Then the charge against him will break down. Hum. We will talk about that. 
and now let us hear a true account of the next act how came the stone into the goose and how came the goose into the open market tell us the truth for there is for there lies your only hope of safety i will tell you it just as it happened sir when horner had been arrested it seemed to me that it would be best for me to get away with the stone at once for i did not know at what moment the police might not take it into their heads to search me in my room there was no place about the hotel where it would be safe i went out as if on some commission and i made for my sister's house she had married a man named oakshot and lived in brixton road where she fattened fowls for the market all the way there every man i met seemed to me to be a policeman or a detective and for all that it was a cold night the sweat was pouring down my face before I came to the Brixton Road. My sister asked me what was the matter and why I was so pale, but I told her that I had been upset by the jewel robbery at the hotel. Then I went into the backyard and smoked a pipe and wondered what it would be best to do. I had a friend once called Maudsley who went to the bad and has just been serving his time in Pentonville. One day he had met me and fell into talk about the ways of thieves and how they could get rid of what they stole. I knew that he would be true to me, for I knew one or two things about him. So I made up my mind to go on right to Kilbourne, where he lived, and take him into my confidence. He would show me how to turn the stone into money, but how to get to him in safety. I thought of the agonies I had gone through in coming from the hotel. I might at any moment be seized and searched and there would be the stone in my waistcoat pocket. I was leaning against the wall at the time and looking at the geese which were waddling about round my feet. And suddenly an idea came into my head which showed me how I could beat the best detective that ever lived. My sister had told me some weeks before that I might have the pick of her geese for a Christmas present. And I knew that she was always as good as her word. I would take my goose now, and in it, I would carry my stone to Kilburn. There was a little shed in the yard, and behind this, I drove one of the birds, a fine big one, white, with a barred tail. I caught it, and prying its bill open, I thrust the stone down its throat as far as my finger could reach. The bird gave a gulp, and I felt the stone pass along its gullet and down into its crop. But the creature flapped and struggled and out came my sister to know what was the matter. As I turned to speak to her, the brute broke loose and fluttered off among the others. Whatever were you doing with that bird, Jem? Well, you said you'd give me one for Christmas and I was feeling which was the fattest. Oh, we've set yours aside for you. Jem's bird, we call it. It's the big white one over yonder. There's 26 of them, which makes one for you and one for us and two dozen for the market. Thank you, Peggy. But if it's all the same to you, I'd rather have that one I was handling just now. The other one's a th good three pound heavier and we fattened it expressly for you. Never mind. I'll have the other and I'll take it now. Oh, just as you like. Which is it you want then? That white one with the barred tail, right in the middle of the flock. Oh, very well. Kill and take it with you. Well, 
I did what she said, Mr. Holmes, and I carried the bird all the way to Kilburn. I told my pal what I had done, for he was a man that it was easy to tell a thing like that to. He laughed until he choked, and then we got a knife and opened the goose. My heart turned to water, for there was no sign of the stone, and I knew that some terrible mistake had occurred. I left the bird, rushed back to my sister's, and hurried into the backyard. There was not a bird to be seen there. Where are they all, Peggy? Gone to the dealers, Jim. Which dealers? Breckenridge and Greenspoint. But was there another with a barred tail? The same as the one I chose? Yes, Jim, there were two barred tails once and I could never tell them apart. Well then, of course I saw it all and I ran off as hard as my feet would carry me to this man Breckenridge. But he had sold the lot at once and not one word would he tell me as to where they had gone. You heard him yourself tonight. Well, he has always answered me like that. My sister thinks that I am going mad. Sometimes I think that I am myself. And now, and now I am myself a branded thief without ever having touched the wealth for which I sold my character. God help me, God help me. Gee, that guy really needs to keep his day job. <laughs> you and Sherlock agree. After Ryder's breakdown, there was a long silence broken only by his heavy breathing and by the measured tapping of Sherlock Holmes's fingertips upon the edge of the table. Then my friend rose and threw open the door. Get out. What, sir? Oh, heaven bless you. No more words. Get out. After all, Watson, I am not retained by the police to supply their, their deficiencies. If Horner were in danger, it would be another thing. But this fellow will not appear against him, and the case must collapse. I suppose that I am commuting a felony, but it is just possible that I am saving a soul. This fellow will not go wrong again. He is too terribly frightened. Send him to jail now, and you make him a jailbird for life. Besides, it is the season of forgiveness. Chance has put in our way a most singular and whimsical problem, and its solution is its own reward. If you will have the goodness to touch the bell, doctor, and we will begin another investigation in which a bird will be the chief feature. So your goose was cooked? <laughs> oh. Well, I bet you enjoyed that well-earned dinner. Holmes always manages to get me to work up an appetite, either with brisk thinking or brisk walking. So are you having goose again this year? Or will Santa leave another carbuncle for our dear detective in his stocking? Or maybe Sherlock has made the naughty list this year. Sherlock keeps well on the side of good in his ledger, AC. As my visits to your podcast and my own chronicles of his adventures attest. 
although I am quite sure he will soon manage to overturn some stone and find some small nick or stain, invisible to everyone else, that will lead us on another merry chase. And we hope you'll come back and tell us about it. It would be my pleasure. So let's thank Dr. Watson Thrillers by pre-ordering your copies of his latest book, The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. Thank you for the promotional boost, AC. Very gracious of you. Hey, not a problem for one of our favorite crime solvers. Hey, so before we let you go, do you have any holiday plans this year? Well, Sherlock may wear out his violin, but I like to entertain my wife with some of her favorite carols. John Watson, the man of stalwart heart and steady aim, gets sentimental. Well, I don't. So, so what does what does the great John Watson sing? Really, AC, do put a fellow on the spot. Come on, John. Don't you think your wife will be thrilled when she listens to the podcast? <sighs> All right, thrillers and Mary. Since AC might not let me leave unless I accede to his demand. Here's a quick verse related to this evening's story. <coughs> Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. Please to put a penny in the old man's hat. If you haven't got a penny, a hay penny will do. If you haven't got a hay penny, God bless you. Hey, thank you, Dr. John Watson, for another surprising tale. This has been Twilight Thriller Radio. Vote in our weekly poll and check out our other episodes on twilightthrillerradio.com. May the universe bless you this holiday season. And if you have any change left in your pocket, please consider donating it to your local food bank. I'm AC Doyle, and next week we'll hear about an even wilder case, an off-the-grid animal sanctuary and the missing persons epidemic it kicked off. The Case of the Blue Carbuncle was written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, adapted by Michelle Denise Norton. The Twilight Thriller radio theme is composed by Miguel Vela. The podcast musical effects were composed by Jeremy Thompson. All other musical and sound effects, Gail Eubank. Insert ads were written and voiced by Nicholas Walsh. This evening's performance was done by Joan Consilio. A.C. Doyle, Laura Kate Marshall, Dr. John Watson, Carolyn Stort Morales, Sherlock Holmes, Jacqueline Perez Soto, Peterson, Kitty Gayogan, Henry Baker, Gail Eubank, Miscreant, Background Tufts, Ashar Otto, Laura Kate Marshall, Ashar Otto as the Innkeeper, Priscilla McFerrin as Breckenridge, Gina Wagner, Ryder, Michelle Denise Norton is Peggy. Upstart Arts is an all-volunteer theatrical collective. Please support us by telling your friends about these radio plays and keeping an eye on our social media for our next adventure. Thank you for listening.